In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. That's John 1, verses 1 and 14, and this is the Living the Word Bible Podcast. I'm Sarah Chris Meyer, talking with women about the Bible and the difference it makes in our lives. The words I just read, John really plunges us deep into the mystery of this pre-existent Word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. But those words, they're beautiful, but they're so lofty that we almost need to read the other Gospels first in order to understand what he's getting at. So we see that Matthew, Mark, and Luke meet that mystery where it touches earth, you might say, viewing it through the eyes of people who first heard the news of God's approach. And in particular, Luke provides a really orderly eyewitness account of the events of the Incarnation. Makes a really good reading in Advent, which of course we're entering now. And as we make our way to Christmas, I have invited Lavinia Spirito, the founder of Catholic Way Bible Study, and also author of the introduction to Luke's Gospel in the Living the Word Bible, to talk with me about those infancy narratives. Lavinia, welcome back. Thanks, Sarah. Great to have you with us again. I wonder, before we get into it, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and what you do? Let's see. I, I teach Catholic Way Bible Study, and so I've been doing that for about 23 years, and it is a national or actually international Bible study, and we've covered most of the books of the Bible. I live in Lexington, Kentucky. I'm married. I've got two adult daughters. I'm a retired lawyer. I'm so happy to be able to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I've retired. I'm no longer. You know, this is what I'm doing now is so much more fun. And I think also perhaps a bit more meaningful. I wrote the introduction for Luke for um, the Ave Maria Women's Bible. I was able to draw out of the materials that I had already compiled, obviously, when I wrote the study of Luke that we did in Catholic Way Bible Study. We did it a couple times, so I've been able to refine some of the information. It's one of my favorite topics. Well, I'm glad to hear that because I'd like to start with some general background about those biblical infancy narratives. Obviously, we get them in Matthew and Luke, and the two gospel writers give us very different windows into the events that are surrounding Jesus' birth and his early life. So can you maybe summarize uh, each of those and tell us what they have to offer? We encounter Matthew first, if we go with the order in which the New Testament begins, and um, he gives us more of a genealogical approach. He is uh, presenting Jesus as the Messiah, as the Jewish Messiah, to the Jews. And so his writings are, in a certain sense, directed more to a Jewish audience that will understand a lot of his concepts, beginning with the genealogy that he puts at the beginning of, of his book. And then he kind of skips over the birth narrative in a certain sense and um, goes straight to the visit of the wise men, the escape to Egypt, etc. He talks about the birth of Jesus, but he does not give us the window into what happened at the Annunciation, at the birth of Jesus, and also Mary's inner thoughts, you know, how she took things and she pondered them in her heart and how do we know what the angel said? Because the angel was there and, the angel, and Mary was there, but who else was there? Nobody else. So we can surmise, I think, with certain certainty that Luke's gospel is based on eyewitness testimony of Mary. Mm -hmm. This picture of Luke and Mary hanging out and she's kind of filling in the details. You know, uh, if you study the scriptures, a lot of them, you know, there's a lot of birth stories and miracle stories and passion stories. And 
There's this, this idea that they're in the very early community, there were all these stories about Jesus that were circulating, but they weren't really compiled in a certain, they weren't compiled until later on when they were written down in the Gospels. I don't know what I think about that, but I do know that Luke gives us the most direct, open window into the facts of the Annunciation in the Incarnation. Yeah. So should start with that. As you say that, it occurs to me, um, I haven't heard this before, but I have heard, I know a number of scholars think that Matthew was written quite early on. I don't know if he would have known it, Joseph, but it seems like his early stories seem to be through the eyes of Joseph almost. I mean, who else would know about the angel coming to Joseph? And then um, I guess the visit of the Magi, both of them would, but the escape to Egypt and all of that. It seems as though Matthew was written through Joseph's eyes. Yeah. And also, if we believe that Joseph died when Jesus was still sort of a teenager, then we can uh, maybe fall back on uh, ancient tradition, uh, church fathers who say that Joseph was a widower with grown children when he married uh, Mary, and this is speculation, obviously, but he could have heard those things also by Joseph's grown children. Oh, yeah. You know, who are in the mix, you know, and who may even be named in the Gospels. Some of those questions I'm going to have to ask when I get to heaven, I think. Amen. <laughs> Absolutely. So I love it, though, that both of them really kind of uh, tell the story through family. So Matthew is sort of planting our Lord in the larger family of Israel, coming as the answer to God's promise. And while Luke does that, he's taking that more personal approach, as you said, through the eyes of Mary, also maybe through the eyes of Elizabeth and, and Zechariah. You know, so very real people who had families and who lived these events, uh, it, it adds a very personal touch. I like also how he firmly places the birth of Jesus within the historical record, you know? Mm -hmm. A lot of people have kind of poo-pooed, well, who ever heard of Governor Quirinius? And this is in chapter two. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. And this was the first enrollment when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So then you have the people say, well, we don't have any historical record or blah, blah, blah. But actually we do, it turns out, depending on what the dates are, we have record of a minor census. And the fact that Quirinius was governor of Syria is actually a fact that Luke puts in so hmm. that we can actually place these events in history. So we're not dealing with myth. We're dealing with history. Nice, nice. So tell us about this family that the word chose to take flesh in. You know, where do they live? What do they do? What do we know about them, about Mary? What we know about Mary, right? We think Mary grew up in Nazareth, although mm -hmm. she may have been a priestly family or at least familiar with a priestly family. If you read some of the proto-evangelians, if you read some of the apocryphal gospels that want to detail a little bit about Mary's life, you have an idea that Mary may have had some sort of a connection with the temple. But be it as it may, you know, she was just a regular teenage girl growing up in Nazareth, right? Mm -hmm. um, of Davidic descent. So that's very important, right? Mm -hmm. So of the family of David. And she's betrothed to Joseph. Now, however old, whatever, we don't, you know, that's all speculation. But we know he was a righteous man. Mm -hmm. We know that um, he too was of the family of David. So that's important too, right? Jesus on both sides, of uh, his foster father and his mother, is descended from David, and that's very important in the messianic context, right? We have, at the beginning, it's all about Mary, right? So it's all about Mary growing up, and the angel Gabriel announces, you know, the Annunciation, you know, shows up with this virgin 
living in Nazareth, who's already, it sounds like, betrothed. And what is that? She's going out with, she has an understanding with what is betrothed. So she's not dating Joseph, if you want to put it that way, right? right. That's not what we're saying. Uh, Palestinian wedding custom, especially, and probably has been brought forth to the present in certain aspects, had a couple of movements. The first one was you negotiated the marriage contract and you had a, quote, betrothal ceremony in which you uh, exchanged dowry and uh, consideration and you made promises. And oftentimes the couple would meet on the day of betrothal. They wouldn't really know each other. And so for the role, intents and purposes, quote, married. But the second movement of the whole marriage thing was that uh, at that point, the spouse, the husband, would go and prepare a house or prepare a place for his bride. And oftentimes that entailed building another room onto his parents' house or perhaps even building a a freestanding structure, but probably the latter, probably the first thing, building a room onto your father's house. That should shed some light when Jesus speaks about how he goes to prepare a place for us, you know? He's that nuptial imagery that he goes ahead to prepare a place. And then when the place was ready, which would take a while, it could take a year, you know, it took a long time. Then the quote, the groom would arrive. But, you know, back then they didn't send, save the dates or (laughs) or anything like that. And that I think puts into focus, I think a lot more, the parable of the 10 virgins, because you're like, what are these girls doing hanging out at the escorts of town in the middle of the night? How do they know when he's going to come? I mean, come on. But the idea is that you kind of heard that the bridegroom was coming, but you didn't really know when he was going to come and you had to really watch for him to arrive. But when the bridegroom would finally arrive at the bride's family and to pick up his bride to go and live with him. So then at that point, the marriage is complete, right? Once the couple lives together. So there's this two movement. I think we meet Mary at a stage of a betrothal, but they haven't yet, and that's, I think Matthew details that, that they haven't yet come together to be lived together as a married couple. So that's where we find this humble girl in Nazareth, probably no more than 12 to 14 years old at the time, because that was marriageable age, a marriageable virgin of the house of David. Now, if she'd been living in Jerusalem, you would have thought that at that point, you know, the prophetic timeline running out, most people were expecting something to happen, some sort of, the Messiah should be here by now. So if she was like a well-to-do virgin, uh, perhaps of a noble priestly family in Jerusalem, she would have been thinking, you know, she and her friends, what about, you know, the Messiah? Could the oh, Messiah yeah. be born on me? But she's living in the sticks to say, you know, even today, Nazareth is kind of far, right? The angel arrives and announces to the most unlikely candidate, right? Hmm. And when you think about it, Nazareth was probably no more than two or 300 people at the time. Wow. Very different from today. Very different from today. That's kind of the whole familial thing. Like uh, Joseph is from the same village, but then they have uh, they have to be rolled in Bethlehem because they're of the clan of David. So there's all that drama, but that's yeah. kind of how it meets. And then who? what do we know about Zechariah and Elizabeth? Because their stories do come together here. Right. And so, you know, the minute that Mary hears that her cousin Elizabeth is pregnant, she basically picks up and leaves. And she didn't take a bus, obviously, but she may have, you know, all the images show her like walking from Nazareth to Ein Karim. I doubt it because that's kind of far on foot for a woman alone. But what probably happened is that she must have joined some caravan of people going in that direction so that she, because Ein Karim is in the outskirts of Jerusalem. So that's from Galilee to Judah, skirting around Samaria. That's 
It's a nice little trip on foot. And so she arrives and she finds that Elizabeth is in her sixth month, seventh month. And, you know, I don't know. They say she was really old, you know, as an older woman myself, (laughs) how old is that? Does that really mean, you know, when the median age was 30, you know, (laughs) how old was this woman anyway? Um, We could probably say she was maybe past the age in which she thought that she might bear a child. But I mean, you know, my mind goes to that kind of thing. And also the idea of her being an older woman when she gives birth. You know, I was an older woman when I gave birth the first time. And I remember thinking, uh, this is great and this is natural. But, you know, being treated with kid gloves because, quote, I was an older woman. (laughs) Yeah. I I didn't think I was an older woman. But I was, you know, there was a lot of conflict. Plus, I was a lawyer. Plus, I was in the hospital. Plus, oh, everybody's like, you know, what is she going to do? I'm like, look, all I want to do is have this baby. And you're not going (laughs) to treat me like I'm 90 years old, you know? But anyway, um, so Elizabeth gets that movement when she sees Mary. So obviously they're related, right? They're cousins. We don't know how that works, but they're related. They're in the same family. And there must have been some relationship of affection because she sees Mary. And what does it say in the scriptures? It says, my heart moved within me when I saw you. And what is it that I owe that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Which is verbatim, Mm -hmm. verbatim, what David says in Kings when the Ark of the Covenant comes to Jerusalem. Also, the language that he uses in those days, Mary arose and went to the hill country of Judea. That's very similar to the writing in the Old Testament detailing David encountering the Ark. So Luke wants you to know, obviously, that Mary is, quote, the new Ark because she carries God. She carries the Word of God, just like the old Ark carried the manna, the Ten Commandments, and the Staff of Aaron. Yeah, so the bread of life and the word of God and the high priestly ministry. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. I wonder if we could back up just a second, because Luke actually starts with, you could call it two Annunciation stories, couldn't you? One to Zechariah and one to Mary, and they're similar, but they're different. And can you talk a little bit about that? Very different. (laughs) I always say, be like her, not like him. (laughs) Gabriel shows up with great news for both of them, right? Also, what people don't realize is is that this is further proof that Mary's family was of priestly extraction Mm -hmm. because Zechariah, okay, the way that priests and Levites served in the temple was by lot, but by group. So they had certain family groupings would serve in the temple at certain times. They weren't always all hanging out at the temple at the same time. So it was your turn. It was his turn to minister in the temple. So he's in the temple of Jerusalem, privileged place of God's visitation. Gabriel shows up and gives him this great news. You know, your your wife is going to have a child. You're going to call him John. So what does Zechariah do? I don't think about it. I mean, really? Yeah, no. I mean, thanks, Gabriel. Great idea. Gr- thank you for the feeling. But, you know, how is this going to happen? You know, can I see some credentials? I mean, he's quite <laughs> quite skeptical, right, of the whole thing. To the point where Gabriel shuts him up, literally. All this negative stuff starts happening. There's this belief that, and you know, he's a priest. He's in the temple. He's doing his priestly service. You would think he'd have a little bit more openness to divine revelation, right? But instead, no, he wants to shut Gabriel down. Thank you for the visit. You know, this isn't, yeah, how, how do I know? And so Gabriel does not allow him to speak until he affirms what Elizabeth says, which is the name Mm -hmm. of the baby, right? The family goes up and says, hey, you know, 
we don't know everybody in your family is called John. And at that point, John was not a, a, a very popular name in the Old Testament. It wasn't like everybody was named John. So they're like, where did you get this name, Elizabeth? And it's at that point that Zechariah's mouth is unstopped so that he can confirm finally in faith the words of the angel. Now, compare and contrast to Mary. Mary receives a similar visit. The angel Gabriel must have been busy, very busy at that time, and shows up and, and says, the spirit of God will overshadow you and you will conceive and bear a son and he will shall be called the son of the most high. And she's like, you know, most virgins probably knew that there was some possibility that something was going to be happening at that point. And she's, and so what does she do? Her words are not skeptical, even though maybe she had more grounds to be skeptical than Zechariah, because she knows that she's betrothed, but there's something that she knows that's an impediment that she will not probably live with Joseph as mine and wife. You know, who knows a prior virginity vow, um, some form of commitment to the temple. We don't really know, but we do know that she says, how is this going to happen? May it be done unto me according to your will. And so compare and contrast the response of Mary is one of faith and one of openness. And God, you can do everything and anything, and I'm here. And then Zechariah is like, well, I don't know. What do you think? I'm too old, blah, blah, blah. You know. So I think there's a lot of room for us to perhaps calculate our responses to God when he gives us his will, when he shows us things that he wants us to do. God can do anything. And if we say yes and we step up, he will give us his Holy Spirit. He will equip us to do things, even the most unlikely Things like yeah. a late baby, for instance, or conceiving the Messiah. Yeah, without a human father at the time. The thing that always stands out to me about that is that Zechariah's doubt does not get in the way of God fulfilling his purpose. He uh, is struck dumb, but the, the purpose is fulfilled in Elizabeth. And mm -hmm. um, I have to wonder... You know, when he was struck dumb, Zechariah must have thought, oh, well, maybe this is going to happen. And I kind of would like to have been a fly on the wall to see his meeting with Elizabeth. And he couldn't explain it. He can't speak. But clearly something happened. Yes. And it must have been a very loving night, I would think, and full of wonder. Well, and also think about this. He's doing his priestly service. Part of his priestly service is to go out and bless the people. And he can't speak. Mm. So it's obviously that's I think even to the people around him at the temple and the people who were waiting to be blessed that something had happened. Mm -hmm. So move on to the nativity. Is there anything that I mean? It's probably one of the most well-known stories ever. Everybody knows what's happening at Christmas. But is there anything that you would like to point out about what we learn about the nativity from either Matthew or Luke? As a lawyer, I always think about my mind works in a certain way. So. The birth of Jesus, the Lord of the universe, is given to shepherds whose testimony at the time in court was not admissible mm. because shepherds were considered to be shifty and unclean and kind of not criminal types, but kind of, you know, not reliable witnesses. And yet, what does he do? What does the Lord do? The angels reveal the birth of the Lord of the universe to the one group of people who whose testimony is not credible. So if people ask later... They can say that they saw that the Messiah was born, that they saw the angels, but, you know, it's not like he appeared to the high priest. You know, the angels came yeah. to the high priest in, in Jerusalem. They came to kind of a shifty, kind of suspicious bunch of characters, right, uh, who were pasturing their, their sheep 
outside during the spring in Judea, right? So I like that. And also because it corresponds to the fact that the first people to learn about the resurrection are also people whose testimony was not admissible in court. And those would be women, Mm -hmm. beginning with Mary Magdalene. So I like this supreme disregard. Obviously, there's so much more about, you know, the nativity. But I love this idea of uh, the upside down kingdom, you know, mm-hmm. about how everybody has value. Everybody has dignity. Everybody has worth. Even the shifty shepherd on the side of the mountain and the women at the tomb. Yeah. And the one priest who gets the message gets struck dumb. So he can't say exactly. anything for a while. Yeah. What about the magi? So the Magi, you know, again, Magi comes from the Greek Magoi, which basically means man who is learned. You know, we've turned them into sorcerers and, you know, and magicians and all that stuff. But really, they were really nothing much, nothing more than probably wise men in service in Persia, at the court of the king of Persia. That's tentatively what they've been narrowed down as. And so wise men at the time kind of corresponds to anybody who uh, has some lived experience, has been studying. And the idea is that they have been studying the skies to learn about events, human events, and that the night sky above Persia is showing them that someone of great import is about to be born. Guess who lived in Persia for 80 years at least, and if not after that? The Jews. The Jews were deported from Judah to Babylon, and then Babylon was taken over by the Persians, and then only 20% of the Jews came back from Persia to Jerusalem and to Judah. Who stayed behind? 80% of the guys who were deported and their descendants actually stay in Persia. So it is not a stretch, I think, that um, wise men in service at the court of the king of Persia would have an inkling that the Jews were expecting a Messiah and that they would be able to interpret the night sky in that way and therefore kind of make their trip because they knew the import of the Messiah, what mm. that means to the Jews and maybe even universally if they knew about Isaiah or Jeremiah or that kind of messianic prophecy, they would have known that it was not just for the Jews. Speculation, but you know, everybody else speculates. So I don't see what we can. You know. <laughs> yeah, I never thought about that. Going back to the visitation, it's such a lovely a lovely picture to think of Mary, you know, running in haste to be with her cousin. And you often hear that it's because, oh, Mary's so selfless and humble and everything, she's going to help her cousin. But I imagine what it would be like for a young girl to have this deep secret, you know, that nobody's going to believe probably, and who can she share it with? And the, the kind of kindness and mercy of God to let her know that, hey, you're not the only one. And I've done this for your cousin Elizabeth, and nothing will be impossible for God. And then for the two of them to be able to come together, and for Mary to get as much from Elizabeth, I would think, as Elizabeth is getting from Mary. Plus, may I also say, if he's a priest, and he lives on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and they're older, we can imply that they're probably well-to-do. You know what? Does Elizabeth need help? No, probably not. She had servants. But what Elizabeth needs is a friend, right? Mm-hmm. a relative and a friend. And then I think that's the role that uh, that Mary, I think, serves, you know, is this divine messianic secret that they're both keeping together, right? One is the mother of the forerunner and one as the mother of the Messiah. And so imagine being the mother of the forerunner and then actually meeting the mother of the Messiah. It kind of adds further proof to what she's carrying inside. 
Well, and again, you know, I'm such a nerd about this kind of stuff, but I mean, the, the Greek uh, verb that is used when Elizabeth says, my heart leapt, or no, the baby left within me. That is the same word that's used in the Septuagint to describe David's leaping and dancing before the Ark of the Covenant. Mm-hmm. You know, when he carries on and jumps up and down and hoots and hollers and gets in trouble with his wife, Michal. You know, that kind of excitement, that kind of something before the work of the Lord. Yep. So there's two stories with echoes of something to do with the Ark of the Covenant. Mm -hmm. And the Ark of the Covenant, of course, is the place where God chose to, you know, for his presence to rest among his people. And it's been gone for a while. What was it? Uh, Jeremiah hid it in a cave um, so that it wouldn't get lost. It depends. You know, Aksum in, in Ethiopia will tell you we have the Ark of the Covenant. They'll think they'll show it to you. But I mean, you know, it's been reputed to have been found in a lot of places, whether it was a cave, whether it's in Ethiopia, whether, you know, they, they sent it down to Yemen to the descendants of the Queen of Sheba. Who knows? Or whether it's in the sky as is seen in Revelation, right? Or it's in a warehouse. Raiders <laughs> <laughs> of the Lost Ark. <laughs> like Indiana Jones will tell us. I don't know, you know. But it is such rich symbolism. And to think of Jesus, God with us, coming and fulfilling that role, which is so much more beautiful because he is a man. He's a person come to be with us. Mm -hmm. The incarnation, absolutely. So any other things you would want to draw out from the infancy narratives? Just the idea also that for many pagan religions of the religions surrounding in the first century, right? Remember, we're in the first century. We, we're kind of wrapping up. We're winding down a lot of expectations. Even the pagan world was expecting somebody to be born. They thought it was going to be the god Pan reborn. But there was this idea that there was this expectation. The whole world is waiting, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And even though there was this expectation, it was very hard for most of the, of the pagan religions to really understand how divinity could become incarnated you know, the paradox, the scandal of the incarnation in a certain sense, right? The fact that, and, and of course, it'll take the church three, two to 300 years to kind of, ha- or 400 or 500 years to kind of hammer out what that means, how Jesus could be human, it could be divine, you know? Mm-hmm. And when I think about the incarnation, I think about all those, all the stuff that was argued afterwards, and yet he chose to become man. The image I get is that when you think about the God of the universe, the God who, who made, quote, the multiverses, depending on if you read a lot of science fiction or not, he created all there is, and yet he decides to become a human being. The difference in quality and in quantity of being between the extreme being, the essence of being, the foundation of all being, becoming incarnated, and us would be like us deciding to become pawns come. <laughs> yeah. I always think about the lowest type form of bacterial life I could think of, you know, in order to redeem the scum in the pond, you know, that kind of thing. And that and even that, that's like we're a lot closer to pond scum than God is closer to us, right? And yet we have that supreme condescension that Augustine talked about, cum descendo from the Latin, to descend to, not to feel sorry for, but to come down and to be a part of the human condition so that then we could then become part of him and then through our humanity be redeemed. It's mind boggling. 
would think that he would come down as a superhero. You know, he comes down as a baby. Right. So vulnerable. Well, you know, it's Advent. We're, we're in a sense setting out toward Bethlehem, you know, going through Advent. Um, maybe we have a lot of expectation. We are groaning, you know, with events of the world right now back in that same part of the world. Yes, we are. And so in a sense, we're where Mary and Elizabeth were. You know, we're expectant. We're waiting. We're filled with joy but also burdened with preparations. I think that's the case of most people I know anyway, you know, getting ready for Christmas. There's so much to be done. It's easy to kind of miss the meaning of it. So is there anything that we can draw from their experience as we head into Christmas to keep our eyes on the meaning of the incarnation of his coming? I always go back to the prayer that we recite every morning in the Liturgy of the Hours. Mm -hmm. And which is that? Which is the Canticle of Zechariah. Verse 67 of chapter uh, 1 of Luke, and his father Zechariah, so John's father Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So this is a prophecy slash prayer that the church recites every morning in morning prayer, right? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He has come to his people and set us free. He has raised up for us a mighty Savior, born of the house of his servant David. This is the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to set us free from the hands of our enemies, free from the hands of all who hate us. In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon those who dwell in darkness in the shadow of death. And I think that is the main language right there elsewhere, some other translations talk about people sitting in darkness, like they've been in darkness so long. They've in Kentucky, they say they've done sat down. They're like, (laughs) they're settled. They know nothing else, right. Mm -hmm. than a world of darkness. And yet this person has come to set the captives free. And he has set to give knowledge, people knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of their sins through the tender mercy of our God to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Mm. Have you ever seen a time in modern times where we have been more needy of peace? Not only peace uh, on a geopolitical point of view, but peace in our hearts, peace in our spirits, peace in our families, peace in our governments, peace in the political arena. I mean, you know, it's like strife needs to be everywhere. And reciting this prayer every morning and knowing that God has provided a solution, and the solution is Jesus Christ, who is the answer, who is the same yesterday, today, and, and forever. That, it, for me, is the way that I know that by obeying him, I am part of the solution and not part of the problem. Mm. You know, I may be maybe a lot of people's problems. I don't know. But I, I am trying, at least, to be on the side of he who sheds light to those who sit in darkness. Mm-hmm. And I may be an assistant to him who guides our feet in the way of peace. Beautiful. I love the way you read that. People who are listening can't see your face, but your eyes were closed and you were very clearly saying it from memory with a great deal of emotion. And that came across just as I listened to you. I had never really read this very much until I started reading along with, you know, morning prayer and having that every morning. And it really is a very beautiful prayer. And it's a beautiful one to memorize, whether you're wanting to be in the, you know, 
spreading light for other people, or if you're sitting in the darkness and you need the reminder that Jesus has come. And every Christmas we get that reminder. Guess what? The light has come. Amen. So I would like to close us with that and read it again. And if you're listening, you know, maybe you want to print this out and take it with you throughout these days of Advent and pray it every day as you're on your way to Christmas and just to think about what it meant that God sent his son to be with us. And if you want to look it up in your Bible, it is Luke chapter 1, and it's at the end of that, verses 68 to 79. So let us pray with it here. Come, Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds to receive your word. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has come to his people and set them free. He has raised up for us a mighty Savior, born of the house of his servant David. Through his holy prophets, he promised of old that he would save us from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. He promised to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. This was the oath he swore to our father Abraham to set us free from the hand of our enemies, free to worship him without fear, holy and righteous in his sight all the days of our life. You, child, shall be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give his people knowledge of salvation by forgiveness of their sins. In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us to shine on those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Heavenly Father, that is your promise, to set us free, to worship without fear, to forgive our sins, to guide us into the way of peace. Be with us as we ponder your promise. A lot of times our world doesn't look like that, as I'm sure it didn't look like that for Zechariah when he first prayed this. But as we head through Advent, help us to grow in our knowledge and understanding of how your son came as a tiny child to save us, to be with us. Thank you for your word and for the life and strength it brings. Open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive and ponder what you say to us in scripture. Give us grace to love and live your word in our daily lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, the living word, Amen. Mary, Mother of the Word, pray for us. Thank you, Lavinia, for your witness and for setting us off on the road to Christmas here. Is there anything you'd like to add before I close? Stay close to the Lord. You know, pray the most dangerous prayer of all. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. Yes. This is Sarah Chris Meyer, and this has been the Living the Word Bible Podcast. Thank you for listening. Join me every Thursday for conversations with women like Lavinia who love and live God's Word. And you can um, hear Lavinia. She's been on this show a couple of other times talking about life in the Spirit and also on the Book of Revelation. So don't miss those episodes. Lavinia has a lot of wonderful insights to share with us. So please um, also drop in and join our Instagram community, which you can find at Living the Word Bible. And if this podcast has blessed you, we would appreciate a positive review to encourage interest in it. Until next week, God bless you as you read His Word.